Previously on I Fought the Lord Podcast. You set me up on a date with her? She said Jersey Devil? Doesn't look like much of a devil to me. Did you date this one too? I have no idea how we're going to get out of this one, old buddy. I have an idea. It's crazy. Maybe just crazy enough to work. How much do you know about the squall? And weird dude. And now, tonight's exciting conclusion. There's some horse in this house. Welcome to I Fought the Lore, the podcast where we examine a paranormal tale and try to figure out why people still talk about it today. Where we don't care about true or false. We're only interested in how or why some stories linger in the backs of our minds while others disappear completely. In the end, we'll try to figure out if the lore won or if the lore lost. We're your hosts, Ben McDewey and Rico Sweets from the Mean Streets. We're here to bring that magical tale to your teeny tiny tingly ears. Ah, now this is what I'm talking about. Did you smell that? Yeah, campfire and... What do we smell? Is that baby oil? <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, uh, no, what? No, no. I I don't even, don't even know what you're... Any, anyway, that, mon frere, is the smell of history. Because you and I aren't just sitting at a fire. We're sitting at what essentially is one of the earliest precursors to the modern internet. More specifically, think old-timey Reddit. Old-timey Reddit. Are we going to summon some trolls? Because that place is full of them. My god, the internet has made people decide that it's okay to be complete pricks because they aren't faced with having to get into an actual confrontation. I wonder if people back in the day would start to become assholes when they get around a campfire to tell their stories, too. Or was the threat of some big, beefy, bearded lumberjack picking up his axe and having at you just enough to keep everybody civil? And you know what goes with a great campfire, don't you? A nice drink. Maybe our last one ever. Who knows? So, before we dive in, what do you say we take this opportunity to consult the spirit guide perhaps for one last time one last ride with the guide and that rhymes so you know it's true that's going on a (laughs) t-shirt tonight's spirit guide is the glenlivet 15 year old aged single malt scotch whiskey from the french oak reserve selectively finished in limousine oak to give a perfectly nutty spiciness to the fruity Glenlivet style. <laughs> perfectly nutty sums up pretty much every one of our exploits so far. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd go along with that. Now, this Glenlivet single malt 15-year-old scotch whiskey uh, is described as rich and buttery with sweet fruit and aromas on the nose, the palate round, sweet, incredibly smooth, fruity, and nutty flavors, along with a gentle cinnamon spiciness. On the finish, lingering sweet almond and spice. And I would say yes to all of that, I guess. All that and more because the critics be damned, I got two words for you. Banana runts. Ah, yeah. That deliciously tasty, chemically sweet candy. From a profoundly unrefined palate, that's what I get if you don't fight me. 
Now, I always get the scent of toffee off of this one. There is a little spiciness in it, but when I am sipping this, it is nice, it is warm, it's definitely got that fruit toffee mix, and I think the Founders Reserve, we, uh, we decided it had some of that too. There's a little more vanilla to the Founders Reserve. This has got a little more spiciness. A touch of cinnamon in it, but still, it's like a little darker in the fruit area. And this is a nice, dark, red wine colored box. The bottle itself, reach my hand right in there, all four fingers. That is a nice, dark, sweet looking liqueur. It truly is. Actually, liquor. liquor. It is single malt scotch whiskey. Single malt, it's where it's at, baby. Ah, right. oh, delightfully nutty. It's like my pants. Oh, most <laughs> awkward segue ever. From the early 1900s up to about the Second World War, there were logging camps dotted all throughout the wilderness surrounding the Great Lakes region. Logging was seasonal work, and logging camps were temporary work sites used to harvest lumber in remote areas where farmers would often transition to this kind of work during the winter. Camps were usually found next to waterways so that harvested logs could be floated to the lumber mills downstream in the spring. And once all the lumber in a particular area was harvested, the lumberjacks would move on. This transitory existence meant two things. Not one thing, not three things, but two things. Specifically two, and if you say any more, somebody's going to punch you in the face. First, that you needed a way to pass the time around a fire, just like this one. And second that you were always encountering a steady rotation of new or new-to-you faces as workers rotated through the various camps throughout the season. Now, you take boredom, you take noobs, and humanity's gift for being dicks to one another, and you have the rise of what is essentially the tall tale. The tall tale could be considered one of the original progenitors of the modern urban legend, since it was meant to either be super exaggerated but told in a super serious believable manner or was completely made up but set in a familiar place to give it that air of believability pre-1960s and 70s urban legends man i'm definitely down for some of that always know your history folks always know your history even before i give an example you've more than likely heard references to the quote-unquote massive fish that got away and no one was around to see it or your supermodel girlfriend who went to a different school so no one would know her. Or the girl you met on the internet who was actually Natasha Henstridge, but none of your friends were around to see it and the two of you went back to her hot tub and had a wild night. Well, here in the woods, the familiar setting was trees. Trees, mountains, rocks, and water. And the tall tales that arose out of it were a menagerie of rumored mysterious creatures that inhabited these woods and were to be avoided at all costs. In 1939, this guy Henry Tyron wrote an entire book on the topic uh, called Fearsome Critters. And Tyron would explain how the whole idea was that, you know, people would be sitting around a fire after a long day of chopping wood and wood-related activities. And an individual would begin regaling those at the campfire about an encounter they had once with a particular creature deep in the woods. Someone else in the group who was wise to what was happening would jump in to quote-unquote corroborate this made-up encounter, embellishing it with added detail that the original storyteller, or OP if you want to get rid of about this, 
would then emphasize, and these two would feed off each other back and forth until anyone overhearing this exchange would be convinced it was 100% true and be compelled to believe it and go off investigating to see if they could find this creature for themselves. In other cases, new or first-time lumberjacks wanting to earn the respect from the veterans would agree to take on quests or challenges that, unbeknownst to them, were a total waste of time. I don't know that this was necessarily the, the origin of the term wild goose chase, but back in this day, it was known as what they called a snipe hunt. Yeah, you always got to haze the new guys. Actually, uh, this reminds me. I was watching, uh, who was the one with the dragons and the boobs? Uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Yes. Okay. So I was watching Game of Thrones and you've got Ned Stark goes, his buddy's the king and... All the king likes to do is drink and have tournaments and go and pick up hookers and stuff like that. So the king decides Ned is going to come and be his uh, first mate or whatever, right? He's going to go back, help him lead the kingdom. To celebrate, he spends a bunch of money on putting on a tournament. Now, the king used to go into battle. He, he took the throne by force. He was all about going in and fighting. He didn't really like being a king. So he decides to have this tournament. Okay. And he's going to fight in it. And nobody wants him to fight in it because, one, he could get hurt. He's a fat old man this time. Yeah. by this time. Another, nobody wants to fight the king because if you hurt the king, then they're going to kill you, they feel, right? Yeah. So he's trying to get into his armor. And he can't get into it because he's too fat. And he's got uh, he's got a page is helping him, and he's trying to get the armor on him, and he's like, uh, it won't fit, sir, it won't fit, sir. So the king gets pissed off, and he says, go find the breastplate spreader. There's no such thing. But of course, it's just a noob, mm-hmm. and the kid runs off, and the king and Ned have this big laugh about this guy believing there's such a thing as a breastplate spreader. It's obvious from looking at a breastplate on a piece of plate mail, you can't spread that. So mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing. It just, when you said that, it just, it, it called to mind that, that specific thing of somebody just kind of hazing the new guy. And then when he runs off to do it like a good little lad, they just laugh at him because he's an idiot for believing it. That segues nicely into another example used by our oily flapjack friends, by our flame bathed greasy beefcakes. One example of this snipe hunt was the upland trout. These fish not only made their nests up in trees and were difficult to find, but were said to be some of the most delicious to be fried in a pan and, of course, were often sought out by inexperienced lumberjacks. Interestingly, though, these fish were not completely made up, but also a reference to the real-life mangrove killifish that could live up to 66 days on land where it would hide in the burrows that were previously dug into tree trunks by insects, or they would hide in piles of decaying branches and leaf matter on the floor. Another example of parallel invention could be the fililoo. The fililoo was a type of crane known to fly upside down, and as stupid as that sounds, uh, was most likely a reference to the real world wood stork. That was often witnessed doing the same thing, flying uh, inverted. Okay, having said that, I honestly have no idea if you're just messing with me now. Talking about a fish that lives on land for up to 66 days and a bird that is known to fly upside down in real life. I have absolutely no idea if what you're telling me is true about the fish and the bird or if you're going to send me out to look for one of these two things, pretending it's an integral part of our survival with your plan. Meanwhile, in reality, you've just sent me out to look for bushfish as a distraction to the Jersey Devil, so you can make a clean getaway. 
<laughs> Moving on. <laughs> As workers would move among the various camps, these tall tales would get recycled and retold among different individuals who were either repeat offenders from previous camps or perhaps the victim of a prior creature gag looking to take a turn as the prankster instead of being the pranky for once. Ah, the pranky becomes the prankster. That's when you know you've graduated to acceptance in the group, when they let you haze the new guy. Now, over the years, word of these fearsome critters would be spread camp to camp, state to state, disseminated by more and more flapjacks. I mean lumberjacks. In fact, the wampus cat, while typically known to be, quote, heard whining around camps at night, and a spiritual green-eyed cat having occult powers has a description that ranges from a kind of amphibious panther which leaps into the water and swims like a colossal mink to a sort of cyborg cat with pantographic forelimbs. Now, pantographic, I actually had to look that up, and best example I can give is those sort of accordion-type hinges that Inspector Gadget had on his extendable boxing glove thing. You've probably seen what I'm talking about. Okay, wait, what? So back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the lumberjacks were talking about this, they were inventing stories about freaking cyborg cats? Apparently they were. That's freaking awesome! Now, other commentators likened the wampus cat to a creature of Cherokee mythology and the feline embodiment of a female onlooker punished by tribal elders for sneaking in and hiding beneath the pelt of a wildcat to witness a sacred ceremony they were not supposed to see. Fun fact that much like Super Trooper, during the 1920s and 30s, newspapers got in on it and reported a wampus cat killing livestock from North Carolina all the way to Georgia. Though later, these were all deemed to be due to early intrusions of coyotes or other large cats. The livestock deaths were attributed to the wampus cat. That is freaking ridiculous. That like, would never did, happen today. Did they just not know what coyotes were back then? I think it was. I think it was a case where they didn't know what was doing this. So the real life explanation was something that they weren't aware of. So they just relied on. So so the real life explanation became cyborg cat. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> oh my God. Old timey newspapers were absolutely ridiculous. Now, these tales are not solely the product of trolling, but in a very tangential sort of way are a callback to an even older oral tradition. I guess, sorry, I just got... You just said oral. I did. And be told <clears throat> as a way to understand sights and sounds that were often otherwise unexplained. Now, according to our buddy Tyron, the tree squeak is a weasel-sized cryptid that could change color to match any tree and vocalize any sound from the wind in the trees to a cougar's whine and a piglet squeal to firecrackers. Or maybe the tea kettler, a form of rodent, unsurprisingly, would make a noise like a tea kettle. And the splinter cat. This was allegedly native to the Pacific Northwest and would use its incredible speed and a rock-hard forehead to smash itself into large trees, knocking branches off and withering the trunks in the process. While these guys seem to have done a decent job coming up with the creatures and their actions, they really just phoned in the names, huh? Yeah, the names were never really the strong suit for these things. As you could probably imagine, being the early 20th century, safe work practices were not exactly commonplace. 
uh, or a high priority, and loggers often got lost, injured, or killed on the job out in the wilderness, and sometimes just never came back. Obviously, these were less often victims of negligence or unsafe work, but definitely unwitting meals for the hide-behind that seized and devoured wayward loggers completely, leaving absolutely no trace. The hide-behind was allegedly of such blinding speed and stealth that it could reach and hide behind the tree nearest to you before you even knew it was there. And moving that fast probably burned a ton of calories and it would definitely have to constantly feed. And that's just science. Other unfortunate souls may have fallen victim to the Dungavin Hooter. The Dungavin Hooter. A creature reported to be similar to a crocodile but with no mouth and just huge nostrils and a powerful tail that would pound its prey that would <laughs> that would pound any prey into a gaseous vapor which it would then inhale as a meal. Okay, so who came up with that name? Given the previous examples, someone should have called it like the croco sniffer or something. I wonder if this was the reason lumberjacks would use when suddenly the camp's cocaine supply went really low really fast. Wait, did did the lumberjacks have cocaine back then in America? I I liked I would I I want to say yes. And it's funny to call back to your previous comment when you mentioned the naming conventions for these things and how the Dungavin Hooter should have been called the Croco Sniffer. All I could think of is that bit from The Simpsons where they go to Australia and there's some creature, I think oh, it's yeah. a frog or whatever. They, that's a stupid name. I would have called it like... The Chiswizzler or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe these, maybe all the lumberjacks were just Australians that would come over for the winter to work. You mean criminals? Australia doesn't exist anyway. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. The, the entire island continent is just one big urban legend. And Paul Hogan. Since you were only as good as the tools you used, another author named Jorge Luis Borges, guessing that's how it was said, recounts encounters with something called an axe handle hound, an unseen beast that reportedly subsisted on the handles of axes that were carelessly left unattended. Bad dog. Actually, you know, there's no bad dogs, just bad owners. Also, axe handles, really? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, Okay, weird, monsters in the woods are cool and all, but, you know, what's with all, where are all the physical descriptions of everything? Why is it sometimes the description doesn't go any farther than just how this thing behaves? That's weak sauce, bro. And to that, I say not necessarily a bad thing. Another author named Manly Wade Wellman. That fellow Wade is quite the well-made manly man. Maybe he was a lumberjack. Probably was. Magnificent beard on that man. Manly Crazy <laughs> six-pack. Anyway, Manly Abs took full advantage of this in their 1952 story, The Deseret of Yandro, in which he states, quote, The behinder flung itself on his shoulders. Then I knew why no one's supposed to see one. I wish I hadn't. To this day, I can see it as plain as a fence at noon, and forever I wouldn't be able to see it. But talking about it's another matter. Thank you. I won't try. Now, maybe it's just me, but this passage takes me back to a lot of the Lovecraft I've read, where the whole point is that the monster is supposed to be all maddeningly beyond description, which of course just rolls the eldritch carpet out for your imagination to start trying to do the heavy lifting to various effect. 
That thing is so alien looking that the mind can only see an approximation of its true form, right? Because to actually understand what you're seeing would drive you absolutely mad. Yeah, Lovecraft had a lot of that going on. Uh, there were things like Cthulhu that he did give a vague description for, but even though they were vague, it let your mind kind of fill in the blanks. And then there were the things that were just, quote-unquote, the black goat of the wood with a thousand young, and that's pretty much all you got. Continuing the theme of conveniently lacking evidence, you've probably noticed that any or all victims are often completely consumed. Animals are seldom, if ever, seen, and in other cases still, if seen, they have some kind of vulnerability that doesn't leave a corpse to be found or verified later. One such beast is the Gumbaroo. If I told you this hairless, bear-like creature had pretty much invulnerable skin and could repel anything fired at it, you'd probably consider this thing pretty OP. Am I using that correctly? Chime off in the comments. Man, we could probably use a couple of those right now. Those would be very helpful. Uh, however, exposure to fire causes the Gumbaroo to combust in a massive explosion. All right, well, forget that. At the far opposite end of the spectrum, we find the Squonk. Squonk. An admittedly pitiful creature that is so depressed by its own hideous appearance, legend says it howls incessantly and will go as far as to dissolve into tears if someone looks directly at it. You know, I tried to date a Squonk once, the date ended abruptly and my pants got really wet. All right, wipe that look off your face. That's not what I meant. Emo cryptids. <laughs> I wonder how many squonks listen to My oh. Chemical Romance. As you've probably figured out by now, none of these are going to be much use to us here. No, we need something claimed to be, and I quote, born from the ashes of cremated oxen and the very incarnation of accumulated abuses suffered at the hands of their masters. Pretty badass, right? Oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Bring it on. Let's summon this thing and let the battle begin. So smash cut to a pioneer lumber town in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Bam, smash cut. Where at some point in the early 1800s, loggers who worked in the northern woods told stories of a monster roaming the forests. According to the website explorerhinelander.com, Newspapers in 1893 were rife with reports of the beast having been captured by a well-known Wisconsin land surveyor, timber cruiser, <coughs> and prankster, Eugene Shepard. I don't know for sure if this reputation as a <coughs> prankster uh, was widely known at the time, or if this was kind of attributed to him after the fact, as I can already kind of start to see some red flags. With the head of a frog, the grinning face of a giant elephant, which I didn't realize that elephants could smile. Thick, short legs set off by huge claws, the back of a dinosaur, and a long tail with spears at the end. It took Eugene, along with a group of locals, dynamite to kill and capture the Hodag. Hodag! Some stories even purported that hunting dogs, <laughs> rifles, and squirt guns loaded with poison water... <laughs> were first used to attack the Hodag without success before resorting to explosives. Eugene made sure the media knew that the Hodag was, and I quote, the fiercest, strangest, most frightening monster ever to set razor-sharp claws on the earth. It became extinct after its main food source, all white bulldogs, became scarce in the area. What? 
I shit you not, again, according to ExploreRyanLander.com and accounts from Eugene Shepard himself, the Hodag ate mud turtles, water snakes, oxen, and all-white bulldogs. But only on Sundays. You know, I guess I can kind of see that. I'll do a Sunday roast dinner with potatoes and fresh vegetable as a side, but only on Sundays because that's when I have time to prepare it. Bulldogs, the other, other, other white meat. All white bulldogs. That's right. The other, other, other white meat. Similar to the Jersey <laughs> Devil, the Hodag story also has origins that long predate anything that happened in the Northwoods logging days. Some historians suggest that the Hodag strongly resembles pictographs found near Lake Superior depicting Mishipeshu, a legendary water panther of Ojibwe folklore. Okay, so we've got multiple people across history talking about this thing. I like where this is going. Prior to being quote-unquote discovered, it was also very popular in and very limited to the tales of Paul Bunyan, who himself was another legend of the lumberjack variety. Ah, uh, Paul Bunyan. Uh, this guy's description and size varied so much from story to story, he's probably less believable than the squonk. Fast forward three years to 1896, where Eugene was back on his bullshit and managed to not only encounter another hodag, I mean, what are the odds, but with a group of bear wrestlers as backup, managed to soak a rag with chloroform on the end of a long pole and work it into a cave where the creature was overcome. A group of bear wrestlers. Was this a thing? Like, troops of bear wrestlers just touring around? Is that where the WWE started? Old Vinnie Mac started out touring around people wrestling bears, and that's how he took over the territories and put so many other wrestling companies out of business? I'm pretty sure Ric Flair was one of the guys in Eugene's party. He could probably tell you all about it. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. He probably groped one of those, too, and <laughs> was canceled for a while. Where do you think they got the chloroform from? <laughs> Although, right. to be fair, he didn't grope anybody. Apparently, he forced them to grope him. The guy's an old man now. He still deserves to be canceled. He apparently has been cleared to wrestle again. He's had, like, what, four or five final matches ever? Yeah. And then he just keeps on coming back. His last final match, I can't remember who it was against. They did their own tour. He joined an independent tour or something, and his son-in-law was his tag partner. Ric Flair got in there, he wrestled, he said he loved it, but it was going to be his last match. Apparently, he blacked out more than once. He's like in his 70s, right? Yeah. And then at the end, he's like, I regret ever saying it was my last match. Now, AEW has hired him, and he's immediately said, I've been cleared to wrestle. I don't know what doctors you're going to, but no doctor should ever be clearing a 72-year-old person to wrestle. He's like, oh yeah, I can take bumps and everything. Dude, you cannot take a bump. No. And he's already stated, you know, I'd be fine with dying in the ring. No, I, I, I think he's going to get his wish. I'm fairly certain you're right on that. Now, the ever-enterprising Eugene proceeded to take his prize catch on tour with a stop at the Oneida County Fair. Attendees would pay money to see a live hodag in captivity. And in a darkened tent, amazed onlookers heard the hodag growl and even saw the creature move. I don't know why I keep going southern with this. It's weird. Thrilling. Yeah, this is definitely northern. Yeah, yeah. Oughta, oughta get that uh, that main accent there. <laughs> That's a terrible main accent. It's uh, it's at their uh, hodag there, eh? <laughs> That's a bad accent I as well. I do like cheese. Mmm, cheese. Naturally, 
as one might expect, word of a live hodag spread quickly in national newspapers until it inevitably reached scientists from the friggin' Smithsonian, who immediately began planning an expedition to Wisconsin to investigate. Now, when news of the impending visit got back to Eugene, he was kind of forced to admit this whole hodag thing was a hoax. He had made it out of wood and leather and moved it around with the help of wires. Okay, so the Smithsonian hears about this thing and they're like, oh, we got to go see this thing that only eats white bulldogs on Sunday is part bullfrog, part elephant, big old claws and the back of a dinosaur. Hey, let's go check this thing out. Was the Smithsonian run by a bunch of slackjaw hillbillies in the early days who were just so bored out of their skulls they'd take any excuse to get out of the office? This reference to Smithsonian scientists being less than 100% on their game (laughs) reminds me of another story that I remember hearing about that I don't remember the specifics of, but it involves a prospector finding the remains of an ancient civilization through a doorway carved into the side of a cliff in Arizona, I think. And something happened with the Smithsonian where they either, he he was either charging them money to explore for them on their behalf and then wound up just ripping them off because he would just send them, they would just send them nonsense and be like, yeah, we're, we're going to go into this other chamber today and we there's like 12 foot tall mummies in here. And I, again, I'm going to have to look it up because I can't remember what the, the exact circumstances were. I remember the end of the episode basically saying that if you were to call, if you're, if you were to call the Smithsonian today and ask them about it, they don't want to talk about it. Is that the guy who claimed that in the Grand Canyon, he found a doorway like hundreds of feet up the side of the cliff that nobody else could get to. And then he and his team were going through and there was like, yeah, there was ancient Egyptian things in there and stuff. And oh my God. But it was, it was another example again. I can't remember, but it had something to do with basically the the with that big fancy museum looking really dumb. Yeah, I can imagine that's something that if we called, they wouldn't want to talk about. <laughs> I wonder what the phone number is. We could just be pranking them. 1-800-UH-YUCK. <laughs> you'd think that this would be the logical conclusion to our story, but you'd be wrong. In the decades since, golfers around Rhinelander by the tens of ones have blamed the Hodag for disappearing golf balls. Oh, man, I bet that's what keeps happening to my lost golf balls. I knew I wasn't as bad a golfer as I seemed to be. And fishermen have claimed the beast often snatches trophy catches right off their lines. <laughs> that rhymes, so you know it's true. That's going on a t-shirt. Yeah, damn right. I've been saying that for years. Much like Choop Daddy, the hodag has become the official symbol of Rhinelander. Not that Chupacabra is the symbol of... I mean, he's also become a symbol of a community. He is the mascot of their high school and even lends his name to numerous area businesses and the annual Hodag Country Music Festival. Hodag! <laughs> the Hodag had a cameo in a 2012 episode of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated as a surprisingly vicious jewel thief with complete with glowing red eyes. So, wait, was it like Scooby-Doo... In the 60s, there were never any monsters. They were always somebody dressed up in a monster outfit 
looking for gold doubloons at the bottom of a pond, and he had to scare everybody away to catch those hundreds of dollars of gold doubloons for himself, whereas later uh, series of Scooby-Doo actually had monsters. Was this an episode where it was a guy dressing like a hodag to rob stores, or was the hodag just sick of its life living in the woods and just wanted to get rich, and this was an actual hodag that was stealing jewels? I am of the belief that this wasn't, like, what it was probably was that at the end, you know, they'd have this, like, normal-looking guy in a rope, and Fred be like, let's find out who you really are and pull the rubber mask off, and it's like the hodag underneath. I mean... <laughs> That would be awesome, unless it was, I don't know, they caught the hodag, tied it up, pulled off its rubber mask, and it happened to be a squonk, <laughs> and then it disappeared into a flood of water because they looked at it. <laughs> they they pull the hodag mask off, and another hodag just underneath. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the mask was just a prettier hodag. <laughs> Zoinks! <laughs> oh, Scoob. In 2017, the Hodag appeared in the expanded mythology of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter universe in an expanded edition of Fantastic Breasts and Where to Find Them. <laughs> oh, sorry, this is Beasts. Hooters? <laughs> Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Even matching previous accounts, identifying the creature as roughly the size of a large dog and horned with frog-like head and glowing red eyes. The Snallygaster a bird-like reptile hybrid sort of thing, uh, was said to inhabit the hills surrounding Washington and Frederick counties of Maryland, also makes an appearance alongside the Hodag. And if I'm not mistaken, Frederick counties of Maryland, isn't that also the home to one of our goatee, our goatee fellas? Wasn't it somewhere uh, in Maryland? There, was, uh, there is the Maryland goat person but I can't remember specifically where it was, but yeah, I mean, so you've got a couple cryptids up in that area. Yeah. yeah. Friggin' Maryland. Got some shit going on up in Maryland. That being said, it would appear, despite Eugene's claims and eventual exposure as a fraud, the hodag is still alive and well in Wisconsin. and leads us to that final and all-important question, Rico from the mean streets to the deep woods. When it comes to our friend and savior, the hodag, does the lore win? Dag yo, hodag. This thing's great. Now, having said that Eugene admitted his hodag was a fake is a bit of a bummer, but the story's worked its way into the consciousness of the entire community, just like the Mothman. This story wins for me. Absolutely. I love the idea of people just sitting around a campfire, telling silly stories and feeding off one another for the fun of it. Maybe to see who can come up with a more outlandish tale and maybe dupe one of the noobs into believing them. That just sounds like a good time. Not that I'm a jerk, but it sounds like a good time. So these stories in general are a win too, but I love the fact that not only did Eugene come up with the hodag, but he built one. Not only that, he took it on tour. Now that is a showman. I know that a lot of circuses had sideshows filled with weird and mysterious creatures and stuff like the crab man and wolf people and things of that nature, but... Those were either people in costumes or ladies who started to shave so they could grow beards or people with legitimate physical ailments. But how many of these sideshows went out and actually built a monster? Somebody who busted out leather, pulleys, and ropes to actually assemble something. 
and then had the nerve to take it out on tour in a darkened room where people couldn't get a good look at it and charge them to see it. Freaking awesome. I love that. I absolutely think it's great. I didn't, uh, it didn't come up uh, just in the tale I was sort of retelling there, but it is known that Eugene also had sort of a little garage shed addition built onto his house that he kept this thing in. So it wasn't necessarily just on tour, but people could come to his house and he would have it on display there as well. I wonder if he built two or if he would like take it apart and then reassemble it if he went to like a county fair or something with it. I would imagine. Yeah, I, th- I think he sort of, he probably had it sort of just in a wagon in pieces that he would just kind yeah. of show up to and then he would sort of <laughs> assemble it while no one was looking. Not to cheapen the effect at all, but it's suddenly dawning on me that a lot of what I want to say here is almost word for word what I said about the Jersey Devil previously. If I had to describe the legend of fearsome critters in one word, especially where the hodag is concerned, I will always come back to the word timeless. There are so many familiar beats in this story, again, that would have it fit right at home in just about any time period you can think of. Again, you have the creation of explanations for things that didn't have one, like they used to do in ancient times. You have cautionary tales meant to keep people, or big sexy lumberjacks, out of harm's way in a harsh environment. You had the use of faked photography in taxidermy, which we didn't even get into, uh, as a form of selling a story and creating an attraction. I mean, think of old-timey Photoshop, but I mean, to your point and your conclusion, you had people who through the powers of taxidermy were creating fur covered salmon or the jackalope is another classic example of someone going all Frankenstein mode with the taxidermy. And the jackalope was great because it was two kids were catching rabbits and sewing and gluing horns on them and selling them to a guy. Yep. You have someone trying to sell people on the existence of a dangerous threat that only they can contain or manage, like everyone's favorite modern-day carnies, Ed and Lorraine. Or, for that matter, Zach Ghost Bro Baggins. Or, as they like to call him on Talk Soup, Douche Baggins. (laughs) (laughs) You have a community rallying around something unique to its history that was originally dangerous, now to generate tourism and commerce. This is a story that has had so many purposes over the years. It's no wonder that it persists today because there are just so many different facets of life that have room for it. Even the idea of the hodag being a popular excuse for a tall tale, you're circling right back to the original reason for the existence of these creatures in the first place. So in a way, nothing has changed in over 200 years. And frankly, a lore doesn't win much harder than that. I completely agree. And as you were talking about the town in Wisconsin, where this thing is famous, and they've kind of built, you know, a little bit of commerce and tourism around it. Remember the episode of BuzzFeed Unsolved? Yeah, was it BuzzFeed Unsolved or was it BuzzFeed Supernatural, where Shane and Ryan went to the uh, town where Mothman is all yes. part of their culture? Yep. And they went to the pizza place. Yep. And they got the Mothman pizza, and they kind of, like, try to actually decorate put the toppings on so it looks vaguely like the Mothman. That's awesome. I wonder if there's a Hodag burger. Oh, that's a good question. Or instead of the Hodag, you get the Ho-Dog. Imagine, oh, that would be awesome. See, now I'm going to have to look that up because if that hasn't been done yet, trademark, that is an awesome idea. Copyright registered trademark. I fought the Lord 2023. (laughs) 
Yeah, Point uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. they have. And yeah, like they have, they have. They've got moth- their Mothman Festival. Yes, yep. they do. And they got the big statue with the nice ass. Yep. And I believe Rhinelander has not one, but they have two great big hodag statues. One inside or outside their Chamber of Commerce. One in another part of the city, and they have a giant hodag head in their hockey arena that their team like comes out of it's got like red eyes and like smoke comes out of the nostrils and everything. Oh really? That's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah, they they really they really went all out with uh with uh with the hodag. That's that's kind of cool when a when a place has such a history with something that's absolutely ridiculous but will just embrace it. Yeah. And and again, that's like what I was saying before is that well, kind of like the Mothman and even like the Chupacabra, I guess, to a lesser degree, you have a town that had something it originally saw as a threat at, at yep. one point. People were afraid of it. They kept their children away from it. They, you know, stopped going to work, stopped going to school. They had, you know, it was this this big deal that they were they were suffering with the presence of this thing. And then at some point, the script gets flipped, and now it's it's a mascot. It's a hero. It's yep. something that they rally around. They love this thing. It brought it brings attention to their town. And it's it, it's it's cool to kind of see that that transition where you have the the monster goes to sort of the lovable symbol. Yeah, which I mean, you kind of see that with the Jersey Devil a little bit, but not quite. They haven't embraced it in the way that Wisconsin and Point Pleasant have done their mythical creatures. Um, but I mean, you got sports teams, you've got those kind of things, and it's a very very well known symbol of New Jersey. But they haven't taken it and lovingly gripped it the way these other places have for lack of a better term squonk yeah i mean that's that's kind of cool and and what you're if what you're saying is really true the hodag and the jersey devil do have a lot in common as well and should we be able to summon this thing to help us it should be a pretty even matchup rico i'm coming for you rico Dude, shut up. Look, it's, it's... What the hell was that? That, good buddy, was a squidgicum squee. Actually, come to think of it, I think you had a squidgicum uh, when we was telling you about Cropsy there. And as you noticed, it is shy. It is so shy, it takes a deep breath and swallows itself whole as soon as anyone so much as lays eyes on it. Dude, that is the dumbest thing I've ever... Oh, come on! That was... almost as comical as it was horrific. Ow! I, I just got hit with something. Who threw that? If I, if I had to guess, I'd say there's an agropelter owl nearby and is said to... Damn it! Amuse itself, hurling twigs and tree branches at passers-by. Jesus. Ho-dag, ho-dag, it's the ho-dag. Man, so they're not all some kind of short bus Pokemon after all. Let's go, baby. Ho-dag, I choose you. Oh, yeah, yeah, get her, get her. Bob and weave, Bob and weave. Put put those hooks up. Watch, watch the tail, watch the tail. Oh, it's talented, it's talented. Knows what it's doing. Hodag, use Thunder Blast. That's it, he's got her pinned. Like, like super pinned. It's gotta be over now. Yeah, yeah, woo! Let's go! 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 Let's go!
Get her! Come Go on! Punch her! Punch her! Get her! Get it! Do it! Well, okay! Well, 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 wait, wait, what? Wait, wait. Oh. No, oh, no, no, no. Don't, don't go for the face that way. No. Dude, what are they? I'm gonna be sick. They're not. Oh, dude, don't go for that either. What are you doing, dude? Oh, God. Oh, 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 oh no. No, no, no. Ew. Ew. Oh, gross. Oh, man. That's illegal. Bro, that's my date. Oh, my baby oil. Gross. Rico, this is the part where we walk away casually now. In slow motion, without looking back, like there was a Big explosion, and we're the coolest MNFers on the planet. Is there any other way? Let's go. Really? Mementos. Uh, so any idea where we're even going? Point of fact, Pine Barrens are not small, and even though the spirit guy always knows where to find us, where can the folks at home, without any mystical powers, find us if they wanted to give us directions or a suggestion on where to go next season. Well, if they're on Twix, whatever they call it now, they can find us at at IFTLpod. Instagram. A lot of people love Instagram. IFTL.pod. If they're over on Facebook, your gossiping aunts and uncles who think they're cutting edge, send us a Minions meme. At I fought the lore with the space and then pod. Or at Gmail, I fought the lore, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you, Acast. Thanks for bearing with our ridiculousness this season. And we'll catch you all in season two. Yeah, come along on this adventure with us, won't you? You know what? I hope they work their magic together and they find love in each other's arms. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. I'm actually kind of thinking we might need to visit the spirit guide again just so I can cleanse my brain of any unfortunate images that are still haunting me. I don't know if I can ever unsee that. No. There's a lot of squelching. That was too much squelching.